Hello, and welcome to Literary Work in Progress, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I am Dan, and if I could live in any fictional universe, I would live in the universe of Dragon Ball. I'm Caitlin, and I so live in Red London. I'm Cameron, and I would go with Terra Nova. I'm Kristen, and I would live in the Infernal Devices world. What? <laughs> yeah, so shadow hunters, but in Victorian London. You just don't get cooler than that. Cool dresses and the ability to slay demons. Like, is that all you want in life? It really is, which is why it's very similar to Red London, but but with more demons and more like romance and love triangles. I know what Kristen. <laughs> which likes. I do not actually want because love triangles suck in in real life. Would you like to tell us more about that? I will just say more my building. best friend and I in freshman year had a thing with the same guy and it was absolutely horrifying all around and sounds like the guy is absolutely horrifying. Oh yeah, he's the worst. I hope you're listening. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> he's married now anyway, so whatever. Interesting Works stories become Sorry, go ahead. more interesting when they are in a fun setting. And worlds can be one of the biggest reasons why you might like a story. But building fun worlds for your characters to live in can be a tricky business, and it's something that we're going to talk about today. So we want to start out by talking about if you're a planner. So there are two basic kinds of writers. There are planners and pantsers, is how we're going to say it. People who plan beforehand and people who write by the seat of their pants. I've done both. I don't know about the rest of y'all, but yeah. I feel like most writers are a combination of the two. Some people are really hardcore on one side, but most of us combine. Unless you're V. Schwab, because she's like hardcore planner. Well, so is Sanderson, and so there are people who that's just what yeah. they like, and then there are people who just like the not knowing Spontane. what's going to happen next. Yeah, spontaneity. Yeah, the spontaneity, I guess. So we wanted to talk this time about how we approach world building from a planning perspective, and then also from a pantsing perspective. We don't pants people; we just pants our stories. Pantsing. That's not true. <laughs> pants authors. <laughs> It's very More interesting stories. stories. <laughs> Love triangles and pantsing people. Maybe there's a reason he liked both of you. I mean, because... Uh, never mind. <laughs> How does that relate? I abort. was going to say... Abort. Abort. <laughs> That's not what I meant. Abort. I meant... <laughs> Kristen's gone. Okay. What I meant is... That he thought you were funny, and that maybe she was intellectual. I don't know, but you're also I'm intellectual. <laughs> Abort. We're going to have to Abort. cut all of this. All right. Anyway. <laughs> <clears throat> Sorry, I can breathe. Okay, so we can start from the lens of a planner. Caitlin, I know that you put a decent amount of planning into your books. So where do you start? It actually depends. The book that I have out now, Last Star Burning, I had a background in Asian history, and so I had a bunch of stuff that I wanted to include, but I actually, Discovery wrote that whole book. And then I went back and fixed things a lot. How long did that take? Well, it was the first book I wrote, and so it was, you know, it took lots of work. But I did plan things for the rest of the series based on what I wrote in the first book. So I don't think, well, maybe some people do. I personally think my head would explode if I tried to pants the whole series, because... If you have a story arc that goes through all three, I think that there's some, like, objectives that you have to have. And some things you have to have thought through before. But when I plan, I have everything in a OneNote document, which, if you use it, it's a Microsoft product. And I like it because you can have different books and you have different tabs. And so I'll have one tab that says, like, the socioeconomic stuff. And I'll put a bunch of pages that talk about, like, 
where artists fall in the in the social order and you know stuff like that that can get really really ridiculous and doesn't actually make it into the story but it helps me to know where things are i also t- think about like the political state the international state where's the the country that my story takes place in how does it relate to the other countries and how does that relationship whether it's a good relationship or a bad relationship with the other countries around it affect the story I think about religion, and I think about science, and whether there's magic, and I put all of those things into one one notebook, and then I refer to it as I go. It's like my world-building Bible. Um, I've done something similar <laughs> on my computer. There are about four years' worth of folders, one for each year, and they contain just information on the various projects that I'm working on. And one advantage of being a planner in your world building is things are consistent. You're not like, oh, well, I need a way for the heroes to be able to get from point A to point B or to not get killed. (laughs) And uh, this is suddenly going to exist in this world. Uh, You already know ahead of time. If you already Um, have a map drawn, you don't have like this mountainscape that suddenly crops up in the middle of things that you have to go back and fix everywhere. And, and there have been a, plenty of mountains that have popped up in the story that I've been <laughs> discovery writing. So, Which is okay, too. We'll talk yeah. about discovery writing in a minute. For me, um, a lot of my world planning kind of starts... For me, it's really character-based. So I think the things that are most important in the world are the things that a character is going to notice first. So, like, in the first book I wrote with this writing group, one of my narrators was training as a healer or, like, a doctor... And so I, like, I knew the medical history of this world, which, like, came up a decent amount, I would say. And from there, I kind of branched out into everything else because I feel like if your character is an expert in something and you're an expert in that thing, it often leads to an iceberg effect where, like, you know, if there's really well-developed medicine, there's probably also, like, grain taxes and stuff. Like, Like, it just kind of helps flesh out the world as a whole. And this applies to contemporary stuff, too. World building is essential based on whatever genre you're writing in. I think it's safe to say that any world that you're writing about, even if it's, like, downtown New York, it's a safe bet to say at least 80% of your readers aren't going to know what it looks like or how it feels to be there. And so you need to do all of that thinking through from your character's perspective and from just that neighborhood or that area or, like, your character socioeconomic level or the job they have. There's lots of things to think about. And we are all fantasy and sci-fi writers, but contemporary, you definitely need to think about these things, too. Yeah, this week I actually read When Dimple Met Rishi. And that one has, like, really, really good world building. San Francisco is totally alive. I get the culture that I obviously am not Indian at all. And it's just very, very well developed and helps settle your character into whatever story you're telling. One of the most important aspects of world building is it makes things feel real. I feel that if you don't really know the world that the characters are in, it's a bunch of talking heads speaking to each other. Whereas if you know what their house looks like, if you have an idea of what their neighborhood is like, we don't need to see all of that in the story. But the fact that you know it really is apparent when you're reading how people go to the store or talk to their friends or things like that. Besides helping make the world feel more real, I think it also provides a framework that makes it easier to have your characters do clever things without it feeling like you're just pulling stuff out of a hat to wow the audience. If you've established things beforehand, 
then you can have your characters react to the information that the reader also knows and then come up with a solution to it. And I'm repeating myself. No, no, that's a great, that's great. I'm thinking of the name of the wind, which has like super, super, super established magic system where like Patrick Rothfuss has basically said that he has whole pieces of paper where he figures out like the kinetic energy required to do something and he figures out how that's necessary based on the magic. It's very science-based. But when Quoth, fantasy. Yeah, yeah, well, when Quoth does cool stuff, you're like, oh, I get that. Unless you're my sister who started reading the book on chapter 16 and <laughs> never understood the How magic system. Well, because cause I was like, Natalie, this book is great. And she tried reading it from the beginning. And she's like, I can't do this. And so um, I like got to the part where, spoiler alert, Quoth's parents die. And I said, start here. And unfortunately, that skips the entire the magic basics. system explanation. But... She got super into it and finished both books, so... That's a really good example of a really fleshed-out magic system, because mm-hmm. that's, like, the point of the books. He goes to a school to learn magic, and so we learn it with him, and yeah. it's so cool. It's such a big part of the world, and a big part of the character that it's relevant. It's not just all the stuff that he's stuck in. It's all fun stuff that we get to learn it's that not, is directly... It's not fluff. It's integral to the plot. Yeah, exactly. The general thing I do is kind of links into... We're talking about problem-solving, in that... The first thing I do is I look at what in the world I'm going to change to make it fantasy or science fiction, and then extrapolate out what other changes that would mean. So, for example, let's say, well, I don't know, if it's possible that you can make yourself weightless, but it also makes you really cold, what does that mean for people who live in an environment with lots of snow? Well, you can walk on the snow, but you're going to freeze to death faster. How does that change society? How does that change how they get stuff done? What I like about using that process is that just working through the changes creates plot hooks because you come up with interesting situations that you just wouldn't have thought of otherwise. Sanderson's laws of magic, I think they applied to world building in general too, not just to magic. The first one, which is that an author's ability to solve conflict with magic is directly proportional to how well the reader understands said magic. Let's think about let's talk about Lord of the Rings for a second. How well do we understand exactly what the ring can do? Well, we know it can turn you invisible, and that's pretty much it. Does its other powers, which are not well defined, do they ever come into the plot? They make people evil. That's and true. That's true. That's consistent. It gets though. proto-stabbed. Well, okay, so there's a second thing. But it's understood. You understand yeah. that this is what it does. The problem is solved by spoilers. Golem falling into Mount Doom by accident, right? There's no... No one casts a spell. No what? You're, you're giving me funny looks, Kristen. No, no, I was just... I was <laughs> saying that's a cop-out, but... <laughs> Are you saying that Tolkien copped out? I'm just saying... <laughs> I don't know if you're allowed to say that. <laughs> I, I'm not sure I entirely believe it, but when you put it like he falls in by accident, that makes it sound like a cop-out. I think that that is solved by the characters... And it's not, like, jumping past the magic system and stuff. My point being that there's, like, no no one casts a spell to solve the problem. Right. Which is good, because we wouldn't understand how that worked, Mm -hmm. is my point. Because we don't ever understand the magic system very well. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Including Gandalf, who just kind of magically does Just kind of appears and does his magic stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So you'll notice that Gandalf spends a large part of that book absent. Even when he comes back, he's only with a certain part of the group. And it's not really the important one. So with magic systems, I wanted to talk about his, and world building too, I think it applies to it. You go deeper instead of wider. The way I explained, the way I look at world building has a lot of potential for being really shallow and really wide. So you can know the answer to where all of the grain exports come from, but you don't know how that actually affects things. You can say... 
everything comes from this other country, but like, does it actually make things cost more? And if it costs more, does your character have to work in a crappy job because they can't afford to buy food? Like, those are the things that are interesting, not the political situation. It's only interesting insofar as it affects your character. Yeah, you want to know the ramifications as it affects the yeah, people that you're exactly. writing about. I was just going to talk about Red Rising because Caitlin and I both love this book and I think it's a really good example of deeper, Brown. Not, not wider. The book starts set on Mars and because Mars has a different gravity, when people get executed, essentially their family has to like pull on them to make sure that they... Their neck breaks die. instead of They're making them suffocate. Exactly, yeah. And it's just like a detail I would never have considered as a ramification of lower gravity, but it becomes super important throughout the book. Be the case because your bones would be more brittle too. Sorry, getting off topic. They have a way to kind of explain the oh, genetics okay. of this whole system. It's very good. But, but it shows you that it's, a, that it's a good premise though, because you talked about it and I immediately thought, well, what about, as long as it doesn't cause problems, it's a good thing. I'd also thought about ramifications with name of the wind again. For example, the one that I thought of is right at the very beginning. Quoth is an idiot. <laughs> well, Quoth is an idiot, but it also develops this great relationship with like his arch nemesis that goes throughout all the books so far. If he would ever just finish the series, everybody would be happy. Patrick Rothfuss, if you're listening, please finish your series. But take your time as needed because... It's been 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> please, I'm dying. No, it's true. Take your time, do what you need to do. So at the very beginning, he starts going to this school. And the person who is keeping people out of the library or making sure they don't have anything that will hurt the books tells him that in order to go into the library, which is kept dark, in order to keep the books from deteriorating, he tells him you have to buy a candle. And so Quoth is stupid and buys this candle and takes it in and immediately gets banned from the library because, Forever. <laughs> you know, they're keeping these books safe by keeping them in the dark. Do you really think they want fire in there? No, they don't. And this sets him on a path to, like making these cool lamps that allow him to sneak into the library and to finding all these things out about the university. And so and also hating the crap out of Ambrose. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And so that it got really deep, really fast, both with character relationships and like the magic system. And it was all relevant because of this one thing that happened. Another thing I thought I have a couple of examples, like the hate you give this whole book is about a teenager who's caught between two worlds. So a girl who comes up from a rough neighborhood and her family has been involved with drugs and there's actively a gang of people who sell drugs that control her neighborhood and she goes to a prep school with a bunch of white kids. And that, I think, is an experience that I have never had. Obviously, I'm white and I don't live in a neighborhood like that and I haven't had any experiences like that. And so she goes really deep and explains this world in a way that I can understand as someone who's never experienced it. That's another really good book. It is. You should check it out. Andy There's a Thomas. reason it's been on the New York Times list for like Almost how a year long? now. Yeah. <laughs> well, in February. Well, and why they're making a movie for it. It's a really amazing book. And it's a really great example of why like a contemporary book needs fabulous representation and world building to allow its readers to really experience what this character is going through. Another one I thought of was the Mad Mad Stoner. It's a retelling of Dr. Moreau's Island. Oh, I don't remember the name of that. The original. Sorry, the source material. But there's a lot of atmospheric and world building starting from the very beginning. She gets attacked by a professor and it talks about... She very quickly starts going into anatomical language the way she, like, fends him off with a scalpel. And awesome. <laughs> she stops a bunch of students from experimenting on a rabbit by killing it and telling you exactly how it's dying and stuff like that. And so you know immediately what the premise of the book is going to be because it's about her father who experiments on animals to turn them into people. Triple yikes. Yes, it's scary. Anyway, 
That's like the first horror book that I accidentally read. <laughs> I don't know why I started reading it, but it's fun. It's an interesting book. But it really sets the tone both for the the horror aspect, but also for the book itself and what it's going to go into. Her father's a scientist, and so is she. One thing that's important to keep in mind is that it's absolutely okay to be a somewhat planner and plan a little bit. And then as you come across details that are important or questions that occur to you or problems that could arise to go back and edit to put them in there. Just because I'm sure there are people who have everything planned from the beginning, but there are also a lot of people who don't and editing is always okay. Well, and also I think that feeling like you have to have everything planned from the beginning is a trap that you get stuck in. It really is. You never start writing the book because there are always things that you're going to find as you go along. There are always characters that will develop as you go. And actually I feel like characters are better written as you write them, you can't decide how a person's going to act until you've actually put them in situations with other characters, and you don't find that until you're actually writing. We should probably talk about pantsing. I can say one thing in its favor is that, um, I mean, I definitely I definitely need more architect than Gardner. that. Than, yeah. There's like, another way like, to say it. I like it. mine better. There are things about your world that you're, you're never going to be able to think of everything in advance. Sure. So there's something to be said for just sitting down with what you've got, whatever, however about that is, and starting. Because as you'll write, you'll run into details where you'll say, oh, I need an answer to this question. Let me figure it out. That's Rather good. than, because you're not going to get everything out in advance. There's going to be some detail. You'll be all of a sudden you're at the top of a building and you find yourself wondering, does it make sense for there to be a cart with hay at the bottom? I don't know. I've asked myself that question before. That particular <laughs> one. <laughs> the description that I heard is planners usually have stories that are well-paced. Everything is... They more easily tend towards um, not having extraneous scenes and stuff. But with, if you're riding by the seat of your pants, your characters feel more spontaneous and lifelike and less, I'm doing this because the plot demands it. You don't have to worry as much about it feeling like your characters are a slave to the plot if you don't know what the plot is. World-building approaches from a pantser perspective. For me, it was basically just, I will write about it and think about it as it comes up. Which, I mean, for me, required a lot more going back and revising than planning generally tends to. I think that's how pantsing goes. At least in my experience, what I did was write the whole book, and then I tried to take notes as I went, but it was, I mean, it was the first book I'd ever written, and I didn't really know how to do it. And so now, if I am pantsing, I keep notes about things that are important, like... I don't know, water kills people that drink it or whatever else. I keep notes and I'm like, this is an important thing. I need to set it up. And so when I go back, I do a continuity edit and I go through and add details in the beginning and I go and do my world building, like that crucial first five chapters, especially the first chapter, and I write them last or I rewrite them really clearly after I've already finished the book. Okay, so let's move on to our critique. So we have a girl who we know her parents died that they're scientists. That they were scientists, and their research was potentially very valuable. And that the fact that they died has been a really traumatizing thing for the main character. And as a way to cope with that trauma, she's cutting herself. She doesn't want to do it because it's also hurting her other family members. And so she's trying very hard to keep control of herself. Some things that we liked. I thought the prose was really clean. Just overall, I think there was a, a nice voice. It's clearly been edited. We have a really clear establishment of goals and motives at the end of the first chapter. She says specifically she wants to get better for her grandmother's sake, and she wants to find her parents' research. So, I mean, I'm guessing that that is what the book centers around. And they interfere with each other, so that's a good like conflict already. 
we, we mentioned that the research may be potentially valuable. We learn about this potentiality through a letter that the main character receives, and I really like the promises that it makes. We might be getting into more of a discussion about that later. But to me, it made enough of a promise that there's some kind of a conspiracy going on. I don't know what kind. That there's some kind of a conspiracy. And it hooked me to want to keep reading so that I can find out exactly what is going on. So with those things that we liked. Let's move on to second book. I can start. To me, Lexi's cutting, it, it wasn't explained in a way that made a whole lot of sense to me, just because at the beginning of the submission, she is so focused and so intent on not cutting because she doesn't want to like hurt her grandmother and she considers herself kind of a burden. And everything in her voice kind of points out that this is something that she is going to do everything within her power to not do. And then on page four, she's just kind of suddenly bleeding. And I obviously could tell that she had cut herself and given in, but I wasn't entirely sure what had happened about the circumstance that was enough to make her give in to this, that thing that she's been doing that's she's really not wanting to do. So I guess I just felt really distanced from her and I didn't really understand what was going on in her head. I'm going to have to disagree in that, at least to me, I liked the depiction of there not being some pivotal moment shown that pushed her back over the edge. Uh, at least personally, I, I, I thought it was a realistic depiction of addiction that it didn't require some extra... She could want to not do it all she wants, but that doesn't mean she's going to stop. I actually am... I'm in between. I'm torn. Because um, I agree with Cameron, because I feel like that's true. Like with addiction, Accurate. I mean, that's kind of how it goes sometimes. And I, I, you'd need a sensitivity reader for that yeah. to see how clear it was. But I also feel like not seeing it happen, well, I guess that's up to the, the author and how they want to depict that. So I don't know. I just wish it was maybe a little more lampshaded. I just felt like I was missing something and I wasn't sure if it was intentional or not. Do you want to explain what lampshading is real quick? It's pointing out something that looks wrong, but isn't. So in this instance, it would be maybe maybe a throwaway thought. So so right now, it looks quote-unquote wrong, because Kristen feels that, well, what what happened all of a sudden? So lamp sh so an example of lampshading, it could be a throwaway thought where she thinks, ah, there I go, you know, that my resolve went out again. Some, just, yeah. just something like that that says the author is aware that this looks off, but it's but, intended. But, but, but it's intended, and, and stay with me, it's going to make sense later. Yeah, this is something to pay attention to rather than assume it's a mistake. Exactly. Yeah. And I guess I had a similar problem with the letter from the Clay Institute. It's super interesting because it proposes a mystery, and so I was automatically invested in this conflict here. But I also felt like it was telling Lexi stuff that she already knew in a way that it didn't really make sense for her for them to tell her. Also, this could be intended... So once again, maybe lampshade it, but the tone of the letter was a little just strange to me. Like it came across as kind of self-righteous and needy. And if that's intended, cool, you have succeeded really well. But I just don't quite have a handle on what exactly this institute is or like the level of professionalism, just because I feel like there are probably other ways to tell somebody that you need their dead parents research than to send them a letter. So I don't know. I actually had another question about the letter. I think it's interesting that she cares so much about the letter because I'm not sure how old she is, actually. What did it say? She's a sophomore in high school? Or yeah, she is. I don't remember. Somewhere in high school. But it seems kind of interesting that 
in light of how traumatizing it is to get something about her parents' death, that her reaction to the letter is, oh, I should probably find that research, because the science must be so important, and it would be so cool if we did this, but I don't really want to pay attention to it because I'm still traumatized by my parents' death. And so, while I really liked that we had clear stakes and motivation at the end of the chapter, I feel like it did not follow for me, because either I didn't have enough voice from the character or like it just didn't seem to jive with what I knew about the character well and I also don't understand why they would address this letter to a 16 year old new orphan like there has to be someone else who is in possession of this research or like the grandmother probably maybe well I mean so for me that I didn't have a problem with that because of the conspiracy angle that these are people like maybe they shouldn't have it and so they're hoping they can just get the idiot teenager to send it to them without them having to go through someone who would know better mm-hmm. what i will say is i think maybe this part has something to do with your problem caitlin that really the and this kind of is like the only issue that i really had with this submission is that it felt lexi's knowledge of her parents was too ambiguous for me that when when we get the letter and they say your parents have been doing this brown breaking brown brown break <laughs> groundbreaking research in mathematics or whatever it was and i don't get a reaction from her oh that's right or oh they were like i don't know i don't in other words i don't know if lexi knows that her parents are geniuses or not one way or the other i think we we should know for sure whether if her parents are geniuses and she knew she should be oh of course they were working on some groundbreaking thing or my parents are geniuses this is news to me what on earth is going on you know it feels like whichever way it is it's, it's missing. Or if it's as traumatizing as it seems to not have any of those reactions until later, but it's in the middle right now. Does that make sense? Where it probably, because she like, she has like a physical reaction to seeing her parents' name. Yeah. And maybe she would have those initial, like, is there well, more that I don't like, know about If she about knew them? that like her parents were working on the equivalent of, well, the Tesseract or, or the Manhattan Project, then she's like, oh, but like maybe that would be enough to override. Yeah, I need to go look at this. But since we don't have, in other words, we don't know what she thinks the stakes are for the research. Oh yeah. So I think I think that's I think that's part of the piece that's missing. Mm-hmm. I also have a reader response thing just about being careful with genre cues. Just okay. So Lexi meets this girl named Olivia and spends a while waxing eloquent about Olivia's strange blue eyes. And to me, that is an automatic. This is a paranormal thing and I think to Caitlin it's an automatic romance thing right Mm -hmm. and so I guess just general thought is to be aware of reader expectations just I can't even voice the number of submissions I've had that are paranormal with people with really funky colored eyes so Uh, your agency yeah yeah a Um, lot actually what I took from this chapter is that this is either a lesbian or bi romance thing because she also reacts very strongly to the green eyed boy that she bumps into outside so we've got very beautiful blue eyed girl and very beautiful green eyed boy I actually put a comment next to the green eyed just because in fiction you meet like a million people with green eyes and in reality that is not the case it's true and that's totally okay yeah I mean just be clear about what it is it can be whatever you want but just make sure that you're being clear So, so to reiterate we're not saying it's a bad thing. We just want you to be aware of the signals you're sending off. Yeah. yeah. For literary work in progress, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Hi, Caitlin here. 
If you're interested in looking at the submission that was featured in today's podcast, you can find it on our website, literarywip.wixsite.com slash podcast. That's literarywip.wixsite.com slash podcast. If you're interested in submitting your work for us to look at, you can find our submission guidelines on that same website. And we'd really appreciate it if you subscribe to our podcast in iTunes and leave us a rating and comment while you're there because it helps other people to discover our podcast. Thanks and see you next week.